Hello, modern historians. Welcome to podcast number three. I hope you had a great week. Uh, I'm recording this and we've officially finished week four and things are starting to get really interesting in the state of Germany. Um, the focus of today's podcast, number three, is really setting us up for the arrival of the Nazi party and Hitler. Um, so sit back, grab some popcorn, grab a drink and uh, listen in to what we've got to talk about today with the kind of um, chaotic and violent and unpredictable events that shaped the, the first half of the 20s for Germany and really the, um, the ability for the Nazis to grow and develop in this period is really interesting and important. Um, I really hope you've done your chapter readings uh, and are keeping up to date with that because that's really important understanding some of these issues. Um, and kind of where I left us off last time was at that point of really considering what Germany was like before World War One and kind of what they were like during the war. And what we turned our attention to for quite a bit of week four was, well, what were they like in those first couple of years after the war? And what was going on? Um, so, really quick recap here on a few things. End of 1918, Germany can't win the war. It's chaotic. The British had blockaded them in the North Sea. There's food shortages. Um... German wages are falling, people are starting to strike in, in various industrial areas in Germany, miners' salaries are plummeting, like all kinds of things are happening and people are just coming, becoming really, really concerned. Um, so what we start seeing is increasing pressure on the leadership of Germany and towards the end of 1918, um, the, the German heads of the army, which is essentially Hindenburg and Ludendorff, they sit down with the Kaiser and they say, hey, listen, uh, we need to seek an armistice. We need to seek a, essentially an agreement, a surrender. And from November onwards, uh, things got chaotic in Germany. So by that point, um, Hindenburg and Ludendorff really are pressing the Kaiser that we need to, we need to stop and we need to um, pull out of this thing before it starts to really destroy our country internally. So they do that. And we know what happens then. We know what people attend the Paris Peace Conference in the first half of 1919. And there's increasing sort of chaos and violence on the German streets. Soldiers are returning home, officers and, and members of the army. We have a significant episode where an element of the German Navy refuses to follow orders and essentially has what we call a mutiny, the Kiel mutiny, and really goes on strike and not just goes on strike, but, you know, starts marching and protesting through the streets. So the second half of 1919 is increasingly poor, if you like. Um, we see clashes on the German streets between communists and, and sort of right-wing right groups, uh, the Freikorps, uh, returning soldiers sort of banding together to, to stand up for the honour of the Kaiser, and it's just mayhem. In this mayhem, in this mayhem, somehow uh, a group of politicians draft a new constitution for Germany. And the, the Weimar constitution, uh, you know, sort of declared in the, um, the town or the city of Weimar in, in August 1919 and where we're going to have new elections and we're going to be a republic now. We're not going to be a monarchy anymore. 
and we're going to sit down and have new elections um, in June of the following year in 1920. And lo and behold, we have a new president. So the Kaiser's gone, and the new president is uh, one of the leaders of the Social Democrats, Frederick Ebert, uh, and he becomes the first German president of the New Republic. That might sound good, but unfortunately, things aren't good. And we know that in these early days, Germany was really struggling to get control of the economy. They're struggling to get in control of the political process. And what really sets them off on a bad foot is that very early on, they start to have significant trouble repaying the reparations repayments that they've committed to in the um, the Treaty of Versailles, which you remember well. And we see inflation growing quickly. Now, we talked about inflation in class, the increase of prices going quickly and quickly. And suddenly, by sort of 1922, even into 23, we have hyperinflation, where the, the price of goods and services in Germany is out of control because simply their currency um, is completely unsustainable in its sort of management and they're printing more money to pay workers and it's just mental and we you know the, the classic kind of almost done to death example is the price of bread which absolutely skyrockets to some stupid figure uh, where you're lining up for a cup of coffee we said this in class and you place your order and by the time you get to the front to pay for your cup of coffee it's twice as expensive as when you placed your order about five minutes ago. Um, all that being said, the hyperinflation thing is worth remembering because it, it really hurts some people. It really hurts some people, particularly people on fixed incomes and students and pensioners and people who had been saving their money for years. And and it was a, it was a real kind of slap in the face for Germany when they were trying to get on their feet. Um, and it's also not at all a good start for the German government we talked about the kind of structure of the new constitution, a couple of good things, a couple of bad things. Um, I guess some of the good things we can really uh, praise about the new German constitution was the fact that all universal suffrage was introduced and all people can vote and um, men and women, which was pretty exciting and equal rights for men and women and um, um, increased funding for, for, for welfare for people. Um, you know, people with disability, unemployment benefits from the government. We see, um, obviously, the role of the president, who'd be elected elected every seven years, so popularly elected, like kind of, kind of in America today, not exactly the same, but still elected, where obviously we know that um, the Kaiser, uh, there was no electing him. He was simply, well, the Kaiser. Um, but we did just quickly talk about a couple of weaknesses, and I kind of want you to make sure you understand these weaknesses. Um, proportional representation. What does that mean? Well, all these parties, political groups, so like the Social Democrats and the Communist Party and the Centre Party and the Democrat Party and the People's Party and the Nationalists, and soon the Nazis, all these groups competed for seats in the Reichstag like they do in Canberra in federal parliament in Australia and they compete for seats and uh, they obviously want to win a majority of seats so they can kind of be in power but each party under proportional representation got the same percentage of seats in parliament as the percentage of votes it received well 
sounds okay, but what it actually meant was that there were lots of small groups in the parliament and it made it difficult to get a majority. So you had different groups joining together. What's that word called? It's called coalition. Joining together and kind of what that means also is that we have government who aren't in power for very long, like short-lived government, and then suddenly German people, oh, we're off to another election and we're voting again. Oh, we're off to another election and we're voting again. And it kind of kept happening and undermining kind of the democratic process. Another thing we talked about was this this Article 48. Article is just one part of the Constitution. There was lots of articles. But it gave the president, the kind of new president, um, extraordinary powers. Um, the, the article would allow the president to act without the parliament's approval in an emergency, but it really didn't define what an emergency was. And that means that it allowed the president to kind of rule as a dictator uh, for whatever the emergency was, like maybe a natural disaster, maybe a flood, maybe a fire, um, or something where maybe the country under attack. And that could be something that, you know, if someone later on got into the role of president, gee, I don't know, I wonder who, or chancellor, <coughs> that they might be a little bit dangerous. So we have this initial chaos in Germany, 1919 to 24. Uh, they don't have a lot of credibility, the new Weimar Republic. They have economic chaos. They have political chaos. They're attacked from the left. Um, and the extreme nationalists on the right don't like them. And it's just a bit chaotic. And then on the kind of edge of all this, we have the German military who were kind of just watching all this unfold and kind of wondering well, what's going to happen here and what is this new government going to do? And they kind of reluctantly agree to sort of support the new government when it suits them, which if you think about that, it's like a really unstable friend where you don't know if that friend is going to come and help you when you need it or sometimes not come and help you. And that's kind of how the army were, the military. They kind of were never really best friends with the Weimar Republic. They kind of tolerated them. And that would come back to haunt the, the Weimar politicians when they really needed them later on. So there's this sense that the first five years, if you like, four or five years of, of the Weimar Republic was really chaotic. And I stressed to you in class that um, the kind of origins of the Nazi party are so small at this point, like by the sort of 1920, 1921, that they kind of, they kind of didn't even register on the political um, radar and, and they weren't much of a, 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 apart from a group meeting in a beer hall or, or a pub with some fairly crazy ideas about bits and pieces and, and obviously extreme right-wing or kind of racially motivated views. Um, but then in 1924 to 1929, is a really fascinating chapter of German history. And the Weimar government kind of recovers. As, now, when I say recovers, like as a, you know, recovers in sort of speech marks, um, it, it recovers in a way that it kind of looks good superficially. And, and I mean, it, there was good recovery. Things, things become a little bit more politically stable. Um, they get um, a, a, a fantastic foreign minister called Gustav Stresemann. Gustav Stresemann. Uh, look him up if you if you have a moment. And he becomes the foreign minister and, and he really works with other countries to kind of get Germany back on the world stage and people kind of thinking that Germany is actually making a, 
a recovery. This guy, um, Gustav Stresemann, he was also served in the role as chancellor, and he he's kind of responsible for for fixing the craziness of the hyperinflation. Like he introduces a new currency into Germany called the Rentenmark. He gets employment increasing. He he kind of he kind of does some fantastic things, and he's a really revered leader in German history. Um, and one of the things he also does is he borrows money. And when I say he, Germany borrows money heavily from America. And these are in the form of loans. Like we're talking, you know, millions and millions of dollars of loans to help their country. Now, this is not weird or, or strange. Countries borrow money from countries all the time. And it's like borrowing money to buy a house. But in, in this case, it's on a national scale. And this helps businesses recover. It means government can lend money to businesses. It means they can can help fix things and get big projects started like roads and various industries and, and chemical factories and all kinds of things that the government can actually invest money in. Uh, two things here to remember that um, I'm not, I don't think we mentioned these in class, but this was called the, the Doors Plan and the Young Plan, and they're kind of two American fellows who were kind of responsible for helping to, to draw this up. And the Doors Plan, plan in particular actually allowed Germany to reduce its reparations repayments and even suspend for two years repayments and gave money, and it's really kind of a, a helping hand for Germany. Now, I want you thinking right now, that all sounds wonderful, um, but what if the country or the person or whoever that's lent me all this money, what if they suddenly turn around and need it all back and they call in the loans? That's what we call it. They, they make a call on the loans and like no longer can lend you the money. And in fact, they need it back. Wall Street crash, New York, America, 1929, was the worst thing that could have happened for Germany. Now think about that for a second. The American economy begins to collapse and America needs its money back. And so it knocks on the door of Germany and says, hey, can we have our money back? And you can only guess what happens to the German economy when suddenly their biggest financial supporter in the last four years-ish, four or five years, can't help them anymore. But I will say about this recovery period, kind of 24 to 29, um, violence declined. And in, in that first few years, like 1919, 20, 21, 22, 23, there were stacks of like people shot and killed. And I don't just mean people on the street. I mean p politicians, like assassinations. We see a decline in that. Uh, in 1926, Germany joins the League of Nations, the, you know, Woodrow, Woodrow Wilson's brainchild that they didn't end up joining, which was just strange, um, they, they join the League of Nations and the, we see the support for groups like the communists and, and the Nazis go down and they don't, they don't get a lot of votes in, in elections in the Reichstag and they don't have a lot of seats and things are kind of stable and things seem to be going well. And that's kind of where we got up to when we were thinking about um, those first early years of Germany, chaotic in the first few years, somewhat of a, I guess, a, a, a recovery. And, and historians are quick to point that this recovery was quite superficial. But I want to stress that 
some part of me kind of um, disagrees with that to some extent because it's so easy to think that in history that the power of or the risk of believing in the power of inevitability, like the collapse of Weimar later on is, is not inevitable. And what we need to really think about here is that if the Great Depression didn't come, if the Wall Street crash didn't happen, if American loans weren't called in and America kept helping Germany for the next 10 years, then we can probably make an argument that Hitler doesn't happen. And so I kind of, sometimes when I think about this, and I want to just let you in on a weird thought, that I kind of think there's this weird relationship between the fact that well, what was the Wall Street crash in America caused by? And part of what the Wall Street crash in America was caused by was the same thing that caused the 2008 financial crisis, uh, greed, and people wanting more and more and more and being greedy. And eventually, a system of greed collapses, and it collapsed in 1929 in America. And if we take a few steps down the road, what's the outcome? The outcome is the successful rise to power of one of the most catastrophic dictatorships in history in Germany and the unfolding of the nightmare of World War II and then the unfolding of the Holocaust. Quite a strange thought, I know, but I, I kind of wanted you to see that things like greed and excess and all that sort of stuff, they, they kind of they have consequences or they can have, have consequences. Um, but interestingly, back, back to Germany and back into that middle part of the 1920s, because that's when we really see the Nazis arrive on the scene. In 1925, uh, Hindenburg, who you're like, who? And you're like, yeah, that's right. Hindenburg, who was essentially one of the most powerful men in Germany during World War I, is elected president. And I'm like, what? A World War I general? He's an old school. He, well, he's old like he's really old. Um, he doesn't love democracy at all. He's supportive of the Kaiser and he's elected president. And I'm thinking like, what does that tell us about the people who voted? And why would they vote for this guy to be president? That That's really interesting. And remember that the president is, a, you know, a, a period, um, the, the period they serve is seven years. So in 1925, Hindenburg becomes president and it wasn't till 1932 when uh, a new president would be called for. So we've now got seven years of an old World War I general, monarch, old school, anti-democratic, and he becomes president. And I mean, think to yourself, well, how's this going to work with the Reichstag and the chancellor of these political groups who half of them Hindenburg doesn't even like? All this is happening. And what I haven't spoken about yet, and I'm going to speak about just for a few minutes, is whilst all this is happening, in the beer halls of, of Germany, in the beer halls of Munich and, and down in Bavaria and places like that, there is a group that's starting to gather some momentum. And that is the National Socialist German Workers' Party, which wasn't their initial name, but it does become the name that um, they're given when Hitler would come to join them and eventually lead them. Um, and, and Hitler starts to really gather some momentum in the early 1920s, but he's not yet a threat and he's not yet a force. Um, so 
I'm going to pause shortly, but I just want to make a few comments about what I've talked about in this podcast. Understand the formation of the Weimar Republic, the abdication of the Tsar, the resignation of the monarchy, the transition into Germany being a republic. It was chaotic, it was violent, it was unstable. The new constitution they draw up has some great things in it. Universal suffrage and welfare for people and rights for individuals and, and the chance of um, sort of um, a, a liberty-based government. But there also is some, some weaknesses within that system that, that would come back to haunt Germany. Um, the political process is a bit sketchy with proportional representation and lots of little groups and the inability to form majority government Article 48 of the Constitution, which allows a president to to rule um, with emergency powers and sort of suspend the the government when he saw fit, um, and and kind of that that all places us in a point of thinking. Well, hap- what happened in the second half of the 1920s? And yes, we do see some recovery. Listen through this again. What what kind of things recovered? Well, politically, it was not so violent and. They borrowed some money from America and they were able to um, start paying off loans and industry and businesses and employment sort of started to recover. Hyperinflation was essentially f- fixed and they joined the League of Nations. And And in fact, I haven't even mentioned this, but one of the most defining parts of Weimar uh, Germany in the late 20s or, you know, 26, 27, um, is the birth the rebirth of of the arts and film and and art and and some of the most amazing films and literature comes out of Germany in this period and there's a real kind of renaissance if you like and some people even call this period in Weimar the golden years and there's a real kind of resurgence of German culture and it all looks very nice but what's lurking in the shadows is is something much more sinister and, and much more disinterested in anything of that. What's lurking in the shadows is a political force that wants to hark back to a previous age in Germany. Remember, the mythical past with hypermasculinity, hypernationalism, and that is not far away. What do we need to understand about Nazism? Well, let me name a few things before I end today's podcast. Next episode is going to be all about understanding exactly what the Nazis were about. Where did they come from? What are the political origins of the Nazis? What was Hitler's role in actually transforming the party? What was the 25-point party program? Uh, What was Mein Kampf? Where did he write that? Hang on, he wrote it in prison. How did he get into prison? We'll look at that. Why were the Nazis really interested in this whole racial thing? Racial superiority. Jews are inferior. Who are the Aryan race? Like, what, what is that about? And how did they become a political force if Weimar was recovering in, you know, 26, 27, 1928? And then why did we see such a dramatic surge in popularity for the Nazis um, between 1928 and 1932? And I've already hinted at that with the coming of the Great Depression in 1929. Um, so... Let me pause there and get you to listen to that carefully. Think about Weimar Germany, how it started, and and then kind of it, its its path throughout the 1920s. And what I will do is go back and tell you the story of wh- where the Nazis came from and how they came. 
because everything I just said in the last 24 minutes, the Nazis were present and they were growing. Now, they were growing slowly and some people thought they were a laughing stock and, and in those early days, maybe maybe they were. But the point is that they were there and they were growing and, and by 1928, 29, they arrive and they don't go away again. In fact, they explode with, with growth and popularity and we'll get to that in the next podcast. Send me an email make sure you're reading through and making your notes make sure you are reading and getting a sense of what those sources are about what does each one mean understanding those sources for your assessment task there's going to be questions on some of them not all of them um, but also when you're listening to this make sure you have a go at that past paper i gave you and bring that into me this week and i will see you in class this week